You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Amen. As the kids are making their way this morning, I want to welcome those who are our guests this morning. If you're here for the first time or the second time or any number of times, we want you to know that you are warmly welcomed with grace and gladness as I invite you and the rest of us to turn to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. You know that over these last weeks, we have been working our way piece by piece through the book of Revelation, just now in the first chapter. And looking forward, next Sunday, actually, we will begin a a brief break from Revelation as Pastor Isaac will preach for us this year what we call the State of the Church Sermon. Again, if you're a guest with us this morning, next Sunday is an especially helpful Sunday for you to join us again as it's a chance for us to look back at the past year, look forward to what we are coming, what's coming prayerfully and to consider again the basics of who we are as a church from 1 Corinthians 15, 3, where the Apostle Paul says that he delivered to them that which was of first importance or paramount concern, and that that, in fact, was the message of the gospel. And so we have this State of the Church sermon every year, and we look forward to it again next Sunday. It's usually right around this time of year, because in fact, uh, this Sunday or next Sunday, somewhere in there, uh, we fall on a kind of anniversary when our church began meeting for the first time as a church plant nine years ago, just about this Sunday, just down the street at Maryland Avenue Elementary School, where we had our Thanksgiving outreach dinner on Friday night. And so we're grateful for all that God is doing. Then we'll take for the weeks of December, we'll uh, take time for a brief topical series to remind ourselves from the word of God that Jesus is our king before returning again to continue on with the book of Revelation. But this morning we're in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. I'm sure you noticed as you came in this morning that the rain was beginning to fall. Of course, we worked very hard yesterday to move a ton of leaves. We'll have to do that again. And every year is a reminder to me and to you of these rhythms in the world that God has placed But as we look at those rhythms, those cycles that are so natural to us, we want to remember just who is in charge of those. That's part of our purpose as we work our way through the book of Revelation. Our ultimate purpose is that we want to exalt our king. We want to see the world the way it actually is. We want to see the world the way that he sees it. And certainly he sees it as a world that he is in control of. Sometimes that can be lost on me when I look at those rhythms in the world. I take for granted what seems to happen every year, uh, even every day. The sun rises, the sun sets. I give little attention to how that sun has risen and how that sun has set, or even as we look at the, the process of, of precipitation, that the sun evaporates water from the lake and it condenses as clouds, it passes over the land, it, it breaks forth in rains, and those rains wash back into the lake again. There's that cycle But I'm often slow to remember that nothing in this world just happens. It is all caused. And there is an ultimate cause. There is an unmoved mover ahead of it all. And that person is our Lord, the King. Listen to what we read, thinking about that precipitation, even that's falling outside right now in Job 36. It says, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain. 
which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. He draws up the drops of water. That's certainly true in the physical world, but as we're reminded throughout the book of Revelation and throughout the scriptures, that is especially true in the spiritual world. He is the ultimate cause. He's the one that we are looking to with all of our hope that he would keep us and that he would change us and that he would carry us to the very end of this race in the Christian life. We want to be reminded of that this morning as we consider from this text the life-giving God who makes people glad. As we come to the end of Revelation chapter 1, before this brief break until the new year, we want to end on this note of gladness that comes from the God who is alive. In order to do that, though, we want to be reminded of what that rhythm is in life, even a rhythm, even a, a habit, even a, a, a pattern that we will experience one day, just as John does here, as we're reminded of the way that God works in our lives and that he is the ultimate cause of all of the good things that have made us glad. And so as we begin this text this morning in verse 17, I want us to see what our natural response to Jesus' presence is. We anticipate that he will come again. I think that many of us have thought about what that day will be like. I've thought about what that day will be like. In times of suffering and grief, we have longed for that day. We want to long more and more for that day. But what will it be like? What will it be like when we are in the presence of Jesus? Well, first, we need to see what that natural response to his presence will be, according to John and John's experience recorded for us in the book of Revelation. And it will be a response of deadly fear. What would it be like if Jesus walked into this room right now? I think that I have often, maybe you have often, a kind of romantic vision as to what it would be like if Jesus walked into the room right now. You might think of it as being something normal and easygoing, as though anyone were to walk in the room. You might think of yourself as high-fiving him or saying, hey, Jesus, because he's become so familiar to us, and, and we love him so, and we long for his, for his coming again and to be close to him. But those romantic views that sometimes slip into our hearts, they fall far short of the unbelievable experience it will be to be in the presence of Jesus himself. I wonder why that is. You know, it wasn't that long ago, just a week or two ago, when we were all somewhat surprised to read those words that every tribe will mourn. That's not the way that I saw that going. That's maybe not the way that you saw it going. And so maybe we need to reconsider what this will be like to be in the presence of Jesus if he were to return in this very moment. And why it is that sometimes we fall back into these romantic views that seem to bring Jesus so far down that he is, he's just one of us. It's the same thing that's a kind of instinct to the fallen human heart. That's why we read in Psalm 50, verse 21, that God said to those who were pulling him down, and the way that they lived, the way that they talked about him, he said, these things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. Perhaps that's the mistake. That's the mistake of our world. That's why uh, our world and even, even we sometimes take Jesus in such a nonchalant kind of way as we believe that he is just like us. 
Well, John found out very quickly in this vision of Revelation that he is not just like us. In fact, as we see here, Scripture paints again the clearest picture. Our eyes often tainted with the remaining sin and our own creatureliness and struggle to understand the truth. They, they work a little bit like, like circus mirrors, like at the state fair, carnival mirrors, where you walk in front of one and your body is wavy and misshapen and you walk by another and you're really tall. But we need the Word of God to be that clear mirror And so we have something striking this morning. The natural response to the presence of Jesus is deadly fear. Listen to what John says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Like a dead man. That's not the way that I saw it going. Imagine if Jesus were to walk through that little doorway right now what would happen? Well, if we take John's word for it, and I think that we should, we would all be out of our seats on the floor like dead men and women because of the greatness of this king, because suddenly we would be thrust into ultimate royalty, ultimate holiness. In fact, it would be something that we would feel was unsurvivable because he is so great, because he is so brilliant. This is not the only place in Scripture that we learn about this. It's not the only place that this is described for us. I really could go on and on, but here's just a few about this common response to encountering God, the common picture being not high fives, not holding hands, not jumping into laps, but actually falling prostrate on the ground. Listen to what it says in Genesis 17, 1 through 3. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And what happened there? As God was making this incredible promise to Abram by grace alone, it says in verse 3, Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. That's not the way I saw it going. Leviticus chapter nine, verses 23 and 24. It says, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire went out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, They shouted and fell face downward. Numbers 20, verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. 1 Kings 18, 38 and 39, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw this, They fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Are you catching the theme? Are you catching the picture and the pattern? That when ordinary people like us come into the presence of ultimate royalty, ultimate holiness, ultimate power and sovereignty, even ultimate grace, we fall on the ground like dead men and women. John saw Jesus in this revealed vision 
and he saw himself fall down like a dead man. This is a bit of a morbid question, but have you ever seen a dead man? Perhaps you have been to a funeral or you've, you've seen a dead person or body somewhere else through just a brief time of, of police chaplaincy in our town. Every now and then there are death notifications or there's some, some uh, terrible accident that has happened. And every now and then I find myself in the same room with a dead body. It is an arresting moment. It is a moment that is seared into my memory unlike any other, really. It is a moment of silencing. It is a moment when finality comes home to my heart, and I'm reminded of the ultimate fragility of my life and your life. It is a moment unlike any other, completely still, completely lifeless, completely unable to do anything. And yet here is the picture of John in the presence of Jesus, fallen on the ground in deadly fear. As we look at this text, and before we see what happens next in this cause and effect that God is in control of, we want to pause for a moment and just remind ourselves of how we might apply this to our own lives and here's first, here's the first use of just these, this one really bit of verse 17. It's that each morning we might set the disposition of our hearts on his utter greatness. As the one before whom we live, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Friends, this is something that I lack in my life. I lack a regular disposition about the greatness of my God. It's the reason that sometimes I worry and fret. It's the reason that sometimes I'm afraid. It's the reason sometimes I'm angry when things don't go the way that I want. I'm lacking among many things a disposition of the greatness of God and his place in my life, his control of my life, and so even here, we're reminded of just how great he is. The natural response to Jesus' presence is deadly fear. Now, you may hear that, and, and you may say, well, how do you know he was afraid? Maybe he was falling down in awe or falling down with respect, or maybe he was just wanting to be real still on the ground there in front of Jesus. Well, how do we know? We know this because the word of God tells us because what we see next in this cause and effect pattern that God is in control of is that though John's natural response was deadly fear, there was a supernatural response that came about because of God's grace. And that's the response of living faith, of security. Right on the heels of deadly fear, everything changes. Listen to this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. You see, he was afraid when Jesus came into the room. 
he was struck with deadly fear, but Jesus did not leave him there. This is one of the most beautiful passages I can think of in all of scripture. He placed his right hand on me. What an incredible personal moment with the living Savior. Sometimes we know that our knowledge of God can become cold, right? It can become argumentative, dealing only with the the theological facts maybe, or who can say it all semantically, doctrinally correct. But when things turn that way for us, we lose. And what we lose is the utterly personal nature of the love of Christ. Sometimes we talk about the gospel this way, is this this just purely kind of doctrinal academic thing, this thing that you should know about, this, this thing that we should go out and just tell everyone, but it can lose the warmth, it can lose the personal nature of just who is this son of God. The son of man places his right hand on John. He put his hands on John. Now there's some language that we can work with because you've heard that kind of language before, haven't you? You've heard about putting hands on another person. There's two ways that people put hands on. One way is in punishment and condemnation. Someone were to put his hands on me out in the street or in the back alley, that would be a punishing moment. But there's another way There's the Jesus way when he puts his hands on. When he puts his hands on, his hands are comforting. His hands are uplifting. Jesus does not lay on the hands of an abuser. He lays on the hands of a rescuer. Let me remind you of those words that you heard just a a few moments earlier from the mouth of Pastor Kevin, talking about this God, do you remember them? Who never berates us. I heard that and I was, I was struck where I was standing. It echoed in my heart and mind in that very moment, right back there, just 10 minutes ago. Who never berates us. What kind of a king never berates me? I look in the mirror I see all kinds of reasons to berate me. I might look at you. And in my sin, I see all kinds of reasons to berate you. But Jesus never berates us. Just like with John, he places his right hand on us. This is the hand of grace. This is the hand of rescue. This is the hand of the gospel. It's the right hand. It's the hand that's symbolized throughout Scripture as the hand of righteousness, of ultimate control. And you get to see what he does with his ultimate control. He rescues. He comforts. He says, do not be afraid. (coughs) Have you ever been in sadness or in heartache or in fear, and you had someone close to you, someone who loved you, 
walk up and put his or her hand on you. Has that ever happened to you? Putting a hand on your shoulder or on your hand or on your knee and just leave it there. What happens to you? I'll tell you what happens to me. In those few moments in my life when I have been there, someone has placed their hand on me in this way, I melted. I melted into a crying, blubbering mess. Because that's what the hand of grace does. It melts you. It comforts you. It cares for you. This hand of power, this hand of righteousness is the hand of care. This hand of authority is the hand of love. The Lord was right when he said, you thought I was just like you, but I'm not. And this is one of those places where I see that he's not just like me. Because Jesus has a way of wielding his authority, wielding his control, wielding his righteousness, unlike any way that I would wield it if it were mine. How does Jesus wield his authority? He wields his authority by laying it down. In John 10, this is exactly what it says. I have authority to lay it down. He's talking about his life. And I have authority to take it back. This is how Jesus wields his authority. He lays his life down. He puts his hand down. And he comforts those who are in distress, those who belong to him, calling them to himself. He says to them, do not be afraid. He tells them, do not be afraid because he is the king who is in control. Notice what he says there in verse 17, right at the very end, that last clause. Why should John not be afraid? Because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead John has fallen like a dead man. And Jesus says to him, I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The two most frightening things in all the world. I have the keys to them. This is a shepherd laying his hand on his sheep. This, friends, I think is what we need more of. This is what I need more of. I need to know this king who is so utterly sovereign and so incredibly righteous and so incredibly in control that he will never berate me. Instead, he will lay his right hand on me. I want to show you one of my favorite passages of scripture that illuminates this truth about Jesus in yet another dimension, another way. It's in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. I hope that, that this week, even though some community groups may not be meeting because of the Thanksgiving holiday, you at home, you might take some time and even open this passage. It will give you something perhaps new to be really thankful for in the way that Jesus has related to us in his gospel, this great king who puts his hand upon us. I want you to hear these words about how Jesus dealt with with fear among his people. It says this in Luke 12, starting in verse 22, he said to his disciples, for this reason I tell you, do not worry about your life as to what you're to eat, nor for your body as to what you're to wear. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. 
They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying or being afraid, can add a day to his lifespan? Therefore, if you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about the other things? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither labor nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Every time I read that, I saw it going differently than it went. I don't know why. It's something about the twisting nature of my remaining sin that every time I read that and I stopped there with you of little faith, I always saw Jesus with this crooked index finger in their face, you of little faith, berating them. Why? Why would I see Jesus that way? He's never berated me. But that's not the way that it went, is it? You of little faith. Does he really have a crooked finger in their face, these men of little faith? What does he really have? He says in verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Do not keep on worrying for all these things are what the nations of the world eagerly seek. And your father knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom and these things will be provided to you. Ah, do not be afraid, little flock. Do not be afraid, little flock. This is the right hand of comfort and grace being laid upon their sheepish heads. Afraid and worrying, he says to them, not with a crooked finger, but with open arms. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen to give you the kingdom. Why does John not need to be afraid? He needs not be afraid, not because he better get with the program. You better obey those commands that I've given throughout Scripture, not to be afraid. Don't you know that I've commanded you, don't be afraid? No. He put his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. What is the source of the strength conveyed? It is Christ's loving control. Everyone in the world in the last two years has become quite familiar with antidotes and antibodies and vaccines which give life and immunity in the midst of impending death. And here we see another picture of such a thing spiritually. Here is John like a dead man in the midst of impending death. And what is the antidote? The antidote is not more commands. The antidote is not more willpower. The antidote is the right hand of grace. It is Jesus' hand on his head as the first and the last. He says, I am the first and the last. This, in a strange way, is preached to us every Sunday. You may have, week after week, uh, gotten used to it. You don't even notice that it's preached to you because it's preaching to you right now, even doubly preaching to you because it's written on the wall behind me. Alpha and Omega. This is a way of talking about Jesus in which he is seen as ultimate. He is the, the bookends of the Hebrew alphabet. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. And here he says, I am the living one. When all of life feels as though it's dead, 
in sin and suffering, he remains the living one. This is what changed John. This is what comforted John in this moment of death. And his life has secured faith and security for us through the gospel. That's why we make the gospel paramount, isn't it? It's because it is what? Good news. It's not bad news. It's not berating news. It's good news. It's not even good news about us or anything that we should do. It's not another list of commands. It's not a finger in our face saying, get with the program. What's the gospel? It's an announcement of what this gracious king has done for people like us who, when we're thrust into his presence, have no choice but to fall like dead men and women in his presence because he is wholly other. And yet here is the gospel Here is his hand. Here is his authority as the antidote to our death, laying it on our heads, laying it on our shoulders, laying it on our hands, on our knees, and melting us with grace. Not only that, but he assures him that he will live forevermore. He will always have this hand of grace for John. And he even goes further and says, I am alive forevermore. How is that possible? Jesus already died once. How could he be sure that he would live forevermore? Couldn't he just die again? Well, he answers it there at the end of verse 18. He says to him, I have the keys of death and Hades. Death, which claims the body. And Hades, this place called Sheol, the place of the dead, which claims the soul. He has the keys of both. It's an amazing reality that belongs to us. No one can take your life. No one will take your soul. If you belong to him, he has the keys, and no one can do anything until he says so. One of my favorite bits of our church catechism, which we read uh, just a few weeks ago, is the very first question and the very first answer. It's one that I have memorized and come back to over and over again. I hope it's one that you will too. It certainly is one that comes to mind as I read about him having the keys of death and Hades because here it reminds us again of what is our only comfort in life and in death. And here's the answer, that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, All things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do we do with this? Well, the second use of our text this morning is this. Twofold. We must. We must. We must time and again place Jesus before our own eyes as alive and full of grace. We must see him not with a crooked finger, but with the outstretched hand laying upon us 
in our death, in our inability to change and to come alive and to be safe and secure, and then to place Jesus before the eyes of the world as alive and full of grace. I will tell you this. It ought to be a crime the way some people are talking about Jesus, even Christians. As if he were some crooked-fingered, snarky, demeaning, disgusting Grinch who goes around only telling law when everything about him screams grace, patience, gentleness to the world. Friends, it ought to be a crime to present Jesus as anything other than a glad redeemer who rejoices in dispensing grace to a sinful world because that is what he's doing. What a privilege you and I have been given in the gospel that we would be again one of those voices of grace and rescue and mercy. Well, finally, we close this chapter with the result of Jesus' merciful encouragement to John. What is that result? Well, first, we must see that it is a grace-made result, and it's a result that leads John to do something very important. It opens John's heart and life to glad service to this king. The grace-made result of the supernatural response of Jesus placing his hand on someone who has fallen in deadly fear like a dead man is glad service. Because as Jesus puts his hand on John, John changes. John is no longer like a dead man struck by fear. Instead, he is ready to serve. That's why Jesus moves forward with his revelation for John to record it. Look at verse 19. He says, therefore, because I am the first and the last, I am the living one because I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore because I have the keys of death and Hades because of everything that I am and have and do and promise with my right hand upon you. Therefore, write, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. This is, this is in real life, In our lives, in John's life, in the Revelation, the last line of that first question from the catechism I just read, listen to it again. Therefore, it's the same word, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's an incredible transformation that someone would go from on the ground like a dead man, still and cold, struck with fear, to someone who is ready to serve such an enormous task. Jesus has done an incredible work. It's as when the, the spring sun begins to shine on the dead branches of winter, awakening new life to blossom. This is what he's done for John, all by laying upon him the right hand of grace. Every Christian has this experience. If you're here today and you're in Christ, you belong to Christ, 
you have had this experience. In your conversion, in your coming to faith, this is how it happened. You and I, we were dead in trespasses and sins, but what did he do? He placed upon us his right hand of grace, and he made us alive. But you know what? We need that same experience over and over and over again. Not that we would uh, become lost and saved and lost and saved. By no means, that's impossible. But yet, it's the routine, it's the pattern that Jesus is causing in the life of every believer as we continually grow. We need this experience on a regular basis. At death, death within us, death in the world presses back in as the fall presses in. We need new mercies every morning. That's why, if you haven't noticed, we talk a lot about preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's why we must every day preach the gospel to ourselves because we need this experience. We need this work of grace to continue fueling us forward, brightening our vision of the king who is full of grace and mercy we need this gospel to keep tempering our hearts, which, which is full of law. And, and, and that law tends to, to rear its bad news head in our lives and then out of our lives into the lives of other people. We need the gospel to come in and pull back our crooked fingers and extend our hands of grace. And that's why we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I was recently talking with four other theologians about this very thing. And we were thinking together about what does it mean then to preach the gospel to yourself? One of those theologians rightly said, well, I think it means to remind ourselves, remind ourselves of the gospel. And we all agreed, yes, of course, that has to be what it means because we're so forgetful. We're going to remind ourselves over and over again every day of the gospel, yes, but we all agreed also that that wasn't quite far enough. Because what we've not told ourselves to do is remind ourselves of the gospel every day, though that's important. What have we said? Preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's an entirely different word. It takes reminding to a, another stratosphere because preaching is different than reminding. Imagine if our three pastors were to come up here alternating every Sunday, and every Sunday we simply said, now everyone, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want you to try this week to remember the gospel. Let me remind you of what it is. That this is the gospel, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you. Uh, just remind yourself of that every day, okay? What kind of effect would that have? We would, be, we would be out of jobs because that's not our job. What is our job? It's the same job that you and I have every day. It's to what? It's to preach the gospel to yourself, not remind yourself. Well, what does that word mean, to preach? We looked it up. It means to earnestly advocate for a belief or course of action. I'm going to tell you what the biggest problem in my life is. I don't know how to preach the gospel to myself. I don't earnestly advocate for the gospel in my life. Imagine if all of us starting tomorrow, every day this week, were to take the same kind of tact that we take right here from the pulpit, preaching out, and we turned it on ourselves. 
Imagine if every day, all through the day, you preached the gospel to yourself. You took yourself in hand and you said, self, listen to this good news. Listen to what Christ has done for you. Look at John fallen dead in deadly fear. Look at Jesus full of grace, putting his right hand on him. Look at what he's done for you. Everything would change. That's what we want. That's what we're after. That's what we need. And the only reason we can do this is because Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. He has extended to us grace, alive and full. And he continues to care for us in this. Preaching the gospel to yourself is the key to the Christian life, just as verse 19 of Revelation chapter 1 is the key to the whole book. Notice finally this here, this grace made result of being glad to serve and what John is then told to write down and and continue to serve perpetually in this revelation. He tells him to write down what you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these. As we move forward in the book of Revelation back in the next year, we will see this very breakdown. This is the way the book unfolds. Chapter 1, 9 through 20, it's what he has seen. He's written all of this down. That's why we are here reading it. But then in chapters 2 and 3, he's going to record what is. And then chapters 4, moving forward to verse 22, what will take place after this. But we want to be clear again and again together. As we look forward to that new year and coming back to the book of Revelation, we want to be clear that our purpose here is not academic. Our purpose here is not argumentative. Our purpose here is not to find out the sensational things so that we can sling them about the world, but we want to know Christ. We want to know this personal dynamic between us and God that when we were dead, he put his right hand of grace and life and rescue upon us and he took us to himself and he continues to do this work in us that he holds and he works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And for that, we're grateful. This is the last use of our text this morning as we pause Revelation, come back to it again. It's simply this. We're being called in this text and in this book and in the scriptures and in all of the Christian life to look carefully into the truth, which gives us life so that we can gladly offer that to the world. Do you know what the number one most frequent command in Scripture is? It is to be glad. Over and over and over again, we are told to rejoice, to be glad, to make merry, to sing, to preach, and to do it gladly as the happiest people on earth, making our God look as he is, glorious in grace with his right hand of rescue. That is our desire, and we want to carry that into this next little season of the Christmas season so that it will inform the way that we worship, the way that we live, the way that we make the most of this holiday season, that we can be ambassadors for Christ, and we can learn to enjoy and love him more. Let me invite you to stand with me now as we pray and prepare our hearts to sing once again. If you're here this morning and you need to come to Christ, you need to belong to this God, you sense that he's placing his right hand of grace and rescue upon you, let us know. 
run to him. Repent of your sin. Place your trust in him. Just as we heard this morning on the screen, all we must do is believe in him. We encourage you to do that today and then continue walking with us as a church that wants to make the gospel paramount. Our Father, again this morning, we give you thanks. We give you thanks this week, not because of these certain things that we celebrate in this week every year, but we give you thanks because of eternal truth, eternal work, work that you have used and done to bring us your grace. We are grateful that though you rightly could condemn us, you could sentence us for the treason that we have perpetrated against you as the ultimate God of the universe, so slow in coming to you, and yet instead you've placed your hand of grace upon us. Oh God, we pray that you would help us not take that lightly but that we would take advantage of your right hand, that we would revel in your right hand, and that we would not be afraid, but that we would look to you with hope and for help in every way. We want to be glad servants of yours, so make us that today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 